The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she began begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged him them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, you can join our volunteers back by the Kids Zone sign. Um, and if it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them to sign them in and get them acclimated. Thanks, Mary Lou. Good morning. As I said earlier, my name is Jared. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside, and I'm so delighted that you're here with us this morning. Please come by and introduce yourself at the end. I'll be just outside those doors. We really love to know our people and be known by our people. So please do come by and say hey. And I neglected to mention when we were just getting going that we now have a nursing room for mothers, and it's in the back corner of this room, and it's marked as such. So if that is a help to you, please feel free to use it. Now this uh, text, Mark's, Mark is doing what Mark normally does, which is hurries. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to read you briefly Matthew's account because Matthew helps us to slow down just a touch in the same text so we can figure out what's going on. Um, so this is Matthew's account of the same text, uh, the same story that Mary Lou just read for us. So here we go. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to Tyre, and Sidon, a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly, and Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at the moment. Used Matthew's account to help fill in some of the gaps in Mark's account as we look at this difficult story. There's two vignettes put right next to each other. One, this woman, this outsider, who Jesus seems to deal with harshly, maybe even sarcastically, but she's an outsider. And Jesus engages with her. And then we see this helpless man, this Gentile, this outsider, who is totally desperate, and we see Jesus engage. The reason that I draw your attention to that just before we dive in is I want us to think about this. The, the desperate things in our lives, for this woman, it's her daughter. For this man, it's his inability to hear and speak well. The desperate things in our lives, which we resent and we try to pray away, may be the very fuel that help us and encounter a living Christ. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord Jesus, would You have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank You and I praise You for Your Holy Spirit. And I ask that Your Holy Spirit would be powerfully active and moving among us this morning. That in the Word and in the sacraments that our eyes would be lifted to the hills to see where our help comes from. For those in the room who are battered by their sin and by their addiction and the shame is strangling them, I pray that you give them hope, that you would wash them in grace. For those who are overwhelmed by the circumstances of their lives and feel like they can't make it even one day more, I ask that you give them comfort. Father, we came here not because we want more of us, it's because we want more of you. We want more of your son, Jesus. We're saying, help us, we're desperate. And we entrust ourselves that you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Many of you know that I am a father of five children, and therefore I've been to the emergency room many, many times. I have a parking space at Erlanger that they just saved for me. No, I'm just kidding. My most unique trip to the emergency room was when my son Knox, who was my oldest son, he went blind for five hours. So here's what happened. Aaron called me, and there was screaming in the background, and I answered the phone, and it's not altogether strange when Aaron calls me and there's screaming in the background. But something was the matter. And she said, I need you to come home. Knox has gone blind. And I said, I'm sorry. I think the phone cut out. What did you just say? And she said, Knox has gone blind. I need you to come home. So I drive as fast as I can to get home. And Aaron's trying to get Knox ready for me. And at the same time, watch the other four kids. And there's so much going on. And I pull up and I put him into the back seat. And it's as if speed limits and stop signs and stoplights had no meaning for me. They were merely suggestions to ignore. I was flying down the mountain, driving fast on the highway, passing people in non-passing zones because there wasn't going to be anything for, to get in the way of me getting my son the help that he needs. 
Well, praise the Lord. It was just a bad concussion that clouded a part of his brain and he was restored to sight about five or six hours later. The reason that I tell you that, that desperation of a parent to get their child where they so desperately need to be is a picture of what we see in this wonderful woman in the text. She is not supposed to be there. They're in someone's home, so she's not invited. He's an Israelite teacher, rabbi. She's a Syrophoenician, Gentile, pagan woman. Oh, and by the way, she has been in contact with somebody who's ceremonially unclean. But nothing is going to stop her from getting her daughter to Jesus. So we see that that desperation can actually be something very sweet for each one of us. We're going to look at these two vignettes together. But as a backdrop, the desperation, getting you need where you need to go, I want you to see something that Mark is doing, which is really cool. Remember what we just talked about last week? Mark has this, this story where the Pharisees are telling Jesus that, now remember, they were the insiders. The Pharisees are telling Jesus that he doesn't keep the rules enough. His disciples don't keep the rules enough to be spiritual. So the insiders who are supposed to get it don't get it at all. And Mark contrasts this with somebody who has no standing to be with Jesus, and she gets it perfectly. And Mark is trying to help us understand what real spirituality looks like. Is it rules and rituals for the insiders to feel better? Or is it a desperate run to put yourself at Jesus' feet? Let's look first at who this woman is. It says that right in the text, she's Syrophoenician. She's a Gentile, so it shows where she's from. A Gentile showing she's not Jewish. A pagan, she doesn't follow Yahweh. And she's a woman who wouldn't have had in those days, shamefully, she wouldn't have had a standing to sit and listen to the rabbi. And then her daughter has an unclean spirit, which means she would have been ceremonially unclean. This woman has no right to be at this party at his feet. And she knows it. But she's desperate. Listen in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Listen to the desperation we read in Matthew's account. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. We find this woman in a desperate place. Before we dive in the rest of the way, I just want you to realize desperation can be a really good thing. Watch closely, friends, as you look through the Gospels. Lost causes and those who have no rights are always high on Jesus' priority list. Lost causes and those who have no rights are always high on Jesus' priority list. Let's look at how Jesus responds. From Matthew, we understand that he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. We see that he, in Matthew, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, but he even only says that after he doesn't answer a word to her. What Jesus is saying is that 
He has been doing all of this kingdom work in Israel and in Judea and the surrounding area in Galilee. And he has come now to the place of the Gentiles to rest. Because every time he does his job in Israel and Judea, Herod hears about it and gets fired up. And the, or excuse me, the Pharisees hear it and they want to come get him and they want to come challenge him. So he takes them away to get rest and he goes to this place of the Gentiles And he tells her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What he's saying is that I'm not a miracle man. I'm not a magic man. My job wasn't to just roam the earth doing miracles. That's why we see that Jesus, the king of kings, spent his whole life in a very small geographical area. Instead of being all over the world globally, it's not because he doesn't care for the world. We're going to see that he does. But it's because his mission was to be what Israel was waiting for. For 400 years, Israel had felt abandoned by God. That they had lost God's favor. That they had lost God's, God's attention. And Jesus had come to say, the one that you have been waiting for is here. And he's saying, that's what I'm here to do first. And then to the Gentiles. It was important that the Jewish people knew that he had come for them. Because many of them will reject them. And it's essentially important that he be able to say, you rejected me long before I rejected you. But this woman, she cries out in desperation. The word in the New Testament means she keeps on begging. Matthew is the one that records that the disciples are like, Jesus, would you please get rid of this woman? We're sitting here trying to get away for the weekend finally get a break from Herod, a break from the Pharisees, or finally get a few minutes together away from the 15,000, 20,000 people following us around. And here we are in someone's home and there's an unwanted guest and she's a Syrophoenician and she's a pagan and she's a Gentile and she's a woman and she's ceremonially unclean and she won't leave us alone. You see the desperation in the Matthew text, it says, Jesus did not answer her a word. And I want you to see that. Now, we can't read Jesus' body language in his eyes. We're going to have some clues along the way, but we can't see the tone in which this whole interaction takes place. But Jesus did not answer her a word. It's almost as if he's daring her. What else you got? What else are you going to say? So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after him. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And those hard words in there. He said to her, let the children be first, for it, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It sounds like Jesus is being mean or harsh. What he's saying is, I came for the children of Israel first, this group of people who are here at this table first, and it's not right for me to throw out the people who've been waiting for me for 400 years and just start giving it away to others. And the word he uses there is dogs. He's using it on purpose because the Jews actually called the Gentiles dogs. And not the kind of dogs that we like to hold and carry around and let sleep in our beds and put in our purses. Not those kind of dogs. These are nasty, mangy dogs that roam the streets at night barking and looking for scraps. Now, that's not the word Jesus used. He softens it for this woman. But then when the Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews, they were using that word. Now, he uses a, do 
uh, he uses the word dog like little puppy. That's the word he uses to soften his point. But he says, this wasn't for you first. And we know from the text where he's headed that it is for them. But he's trying to make this point that he was sent first as the Messiah to Israel who'd been waiting for 400 years of silence. And now Jesus is silent and doesn't respond. Here's what's going on, friends, and I know it's hard to follow all of that. Jesus had just been with the Pharisees who think religious insiders who play by the rules are doing it right. He proves them wrong. And now he's with a religious outsider who's not listening to any rules and he's about to show how much she gets it right. He's testing how much confidence she has in him, just what she knows about him, just how desperate she is. The reason that I tell you that is because, friends, being a desperate case and knowing something deeply about Jesus is a powerful, beautiful place to be. We'd like to think that we can grow in our intimacy and appreciation from Jesus out of our strengths and our gifts. But here's the funny thing. In your strengths, you know what to do and you do it. You don't slow down. You don't ask for help. In your giftedness, you know exactly what you're good at. You know exactly how to be self-sufficient. But it's in your desperation. It's in your neediness. It's when you're sick. It's when your marriage is strained. It's when there's not enough money. It's in your desperation where you look up and say, I have nothing. Help me, Lord. Help me. It's in your desperation that actually fuels your intimacy with Jesus because you have said what is actually true about you, which is, I need help. And yet you have brought it to the place and to the person who can actually do something about it. That's what was wrong with the Pharisees. They didn't have any need. And they didn't think Jesus could fulfill it. And this woman has colossal need and nothing will stop her from getting to Jesus. You may think, I'm an outsider, Jared. I'm not the most natural person that Jesus would draw near. Trust me. What Jesus is doing is showing that insiders who knew everything didn't even know enough to know what matters, that Jesus changes everything. And friends, this is what I want you to take home with you. This is what I want you to take home with you. Your neediness, that sense of I keep sinning and I can't stop, that sense of my family life isn't what it's supposed to be, my marriage isn't what it's supposed to be, the finances aren't what it's supposed to be, just that gnawing ache of anxiety and depression, this sense of neediness of I'm a mess and there's nothing I can do about it, that sense is the best thing you've got going for you. Your desperation should be your favorite thing about you because it is your desperation which will lead you to the feet of Jesus just like this woman. Stop resenting your neediness. It will fuel a dependence and a love for Christ that you can't possibly imagine. This woman's not there to plead her case. She's not there to plead her case. She's not allowed to be there. She wasn't invited. She's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's a Syrophoenician, and she's ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. She is not going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I deserve this. Would you, would you please do this? I deserve it. 
Tim Keller says it this way, and I don't want you to miss this. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have an assertion of our rights. Who's going to compare assertion of our rights? Listen, we do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and on our goodness, saying, this is what I'm owed. Listen, but this woman isn't doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She is saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And I need it now, is what Keller says. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve based upon my goodness. She's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve based upon your goodness. It's the audacity of the gospel. Is that when you draw near to Jesus in your desperation, you're saying, Lord, would you please give me this wonderful thing, grace, that I don't deserve, not because of me, but because of you. You love to save lost causes. You love to draw near to sinful people. You love to rescue broken people. So not because of me, but because of you. This is your favorite thing to do, Jesus. You see the beauty and the outlandish power of the gospel. I don't want you to miss it. And this is a woman who's on the outside. I want you to, as a Christian in the 21st century, I want you to see and embrace the beauty of what it means for you. If a woman who's on the outside can say, I don't plead my record, I plead yours, gets Jesus' attention, how much for us who have been adopted by the Holy Spirit, brought in... We now have his record. We now have his robes. We now have his fondness. And so you don't just stand there on the sense on the outside pleading someone else's record. You were that. But now you stand on the inside pleading his record, wearing his robes. And my point in telling you that is how much does God love to hear you talk? You are one of his and you're drawing near, not on your own goodness, but on someone else's goodness. And you're wearing his son's robe saying, God, I need you to meet me in. He's listening. He loves to hear those prayers. What it says is, is that I'm not here because of me, I'm here because of you. I've said this before, but in, I used to get a lot of speeding tickets. Now I get a few speeding tickets. But in high school, I would get a lot of speeding tickets, and I would go to my father, who is also an attorney, and he would look at me and be like, you have to slow down. This is, stop it. And then he would fix my ticket. And I'd have friends who would hear about my dad doing this for me, and I, they would get tickets, and he would come, they would come and ask him, and he'd be like, no, nah, I can't do that. I don't want to be fixing everybody's tickets. And he'd be like, Jared, you need to not get any more tickets. And then I would come to him and say, Father, I've gotten another speeding ticket. And I knew I was in the wrong. I knew I had done the crime. And yet I knew my father looking at me, as frustrated as he might be that I've been speeding again, because I'm his son, because he's my advocate, I knew he would go and say, I will stand up, I will speak up. That's what you have in Christ Somebody who knows that you have done the wrong and yet he will put himself in the way. He will be the one who speaks up for you. 
It's important to remember that we can't see the countenance of Jesus. We can't feel the tone in the room. Alistair Begg quotes Barclay, a Scottish pastor on this. Listen to what he says. The tone and look with which a thing is said make all the difference. A thing which seems hard can be said with a disarming smile. We can call a friend an old villain or a rascal with a smile and a tone which can take the sting out of it and fill it with affection. Listen to this. We can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes rob the words of all insult and bitterness. He is proud of this woman. You see his response? Look at your answer. I've got these Pharisees who don't get it. I've got these 12 bumbling guys who don't get it. And this outsider woman, pagan Gentile, who's ceremonially unclean, gets it. Look at her answer. I've got a problem and Jesus is the one to fix it. And that's what he says with a smile on his face. Friends, your desperation may be the best thing you've got going. And we'll deal with this second episode quickly. Verse 31. He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And after taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There's this really sweet thing that Mark has laid out for us here. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds a bunch of people, and then we come to this story where Jesus opens someone's ears. And in Mark 8, Jesus is going to feed a bunch of people. And at the end of Mark 8, he's going to open Peter's ears for the first time. And so it's sort of laid out for us so that we won't miss Peter's point through Mark. Jesus can provide and Jesus will open your ears. Remember this place that he had gone to, it was Decapolis. It's where he had freed legion from all of these demons who had gone into the pigs. It's a place for outsiders. We'd already talked about the fact that Jesus loves the outsiders. Jesus is wrecking the idea that grace is for spiritual insiders. So who are the people that Jesus would have drawn near today? It's a scary question. Jesus did not like religious insiders who were self-sufficient and spent time with drunks and prostitutes. Who are the people that Jesus would have drawn near today? If you think someone is beyond his reach, I would guess that that's exactly who Jesus is after. Look at these friends of his. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Don't you love that? Are you the kind of person who gets your friends desperately? Who gets your friends who are desperate to Jesus? Are you the kind of person who is nudging and walking and carrying people and bringing them to the feet of Jesus? 
I certainly hope that that's what we're about here at this church. In subtle ways, in intentional ways, and in thoughtful ways, and sometimes striking ways, that we are the kind of people that get people to Jesus' feet. Friends, let's get people here. Not just here to this church, but here to this Savior. It's always helpless people that get Jesus' attention. But the problem is, is the helpless people often conclude that there's nothing for them here. That they're too wrecked, they're too sinful, they're too messy to be here. Do you see? Jesus says it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. So what the church has accidentally done is put the sick on the outside and say, we really want you to come experience Jesus, but get well before you come. And he says, no, you go get them and bring them here. There's this amazing story in Matthew 20 where John and James, the sons of thunder, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, actually they get their mommy. They get their mommy and they're like, hey, mommy, when we go to heaven, we want to sit on Jesus's right and left. And so we want you to go ask Jesus. Super strong man move to do. And so... You can just imagine John and James walk up to Jesus and they're like, hey, hey, Jesus, my mom has to talk to you. <laughs> and he, Jesus says this, what is it that you want? And she says, well, it would be great if they could sit on the right and the left. And he says, that's not mine to give. The very next episode, the very next episode, listen to this. And they went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed him and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and they heard that Jesus was passing by, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you think Jesus said? What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Let our eyes be opened. And immediately, their eyes were opened and they recovered their sight and followed him. So when we ask Jesus, out of a sense of what we're due, out of a sense of what we want, what do you want from us? It's kindly and casually ignored. But out of a sense of desperation and total and utter need, so he says, what do you want from us? And Jesus answers right away. The point is, is that your helplessness helps you. Your desperation leads you right to the feet of Jesus. The things in your life that you want to go away, don't pray them away. Pray that they would lead you right to where you so need to go. And you see Jesus, this glorious moment, is so gentle. Look at this, in verse 35 through 37. And his ears were open, and, oh, sorry, kick back up in 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. This is not Jesus' COVID-friendly miracle. He takes him aside. Can you imagine that? Somebody who's been deaf and stammering for his whole life. If anyone was sick of the wrong kind of attention, it was this guy. 
being mocked and pitied and marginalized. And Jesus won't make a spectacle of him. He pulls him aside, out of the way, privately. And he touches him. His hands in his ears, his hands on his tongue. It's as if he's communicating in the way, the only way that this man can do, because he can't hear Jesus talk. Jesus is showing him what's about to happen. And if you can just... If you could just put yourself in that moment for a second, when you've seen doctors and you've had people pray over you and you've lost all hope that anything ever is going to happen, and this guy, this guy that you've heard about has come, and he doesn't just see you. He takes you aside and he starts doing this. He starts showing you what he's going to do. You would imagine that there was some hope and there was some terror in him. This is just going to be one more disappointment. One more person who says they're going to help and not help. And Jesus engages him and he says, Ephthaphtha. The commentators talk about what a hard word Ephthaphtha is to actually say. That it would have been so difficult. But it's as if, catch this, the guy's looking at him. Ephthaphtha. It's as if, don't mistake for one second what's going on here you know exactly what I'm about to do he draws near to him in gentleness makes him feel personal Francis Schaeffer the wonderful Christian in the 1900s and he brought many to Christ Schaefer would just always gather up all these people who were a mess, whose life just kept falling apart around him. And he would love on them, and he would listen to them, and he would make them feel known and seen. And at one point, this man who had been an architect but gave up his business, he was so disillusioned with the 60s. And he sold his business, and he, he gave up, and almost penniless, he comes to Schaefer, and he just follows him around, and he does what Schaefer asks, and he engages with Schaefer. And somebody finally asks him, you don't even believe what Schaefer believes. Why would you spend all this time following him around? The man answered simply, I don't know if what Francis Schaeffer is telling me about Christianity, it's true or it's not. But I do know this, that man loves me. Can you imagine if that's what our reputation was at your work, at CrossFit, at yoga, at the bar? If your friends say, I don't know if what you believe, I can't believe you believe some of this, but I don't know if what you believe is true. But what I can say is that person loves me. What if that were our reputation as a church, this gentle incarnational touch that modeling after Jesus? And then you see the sweetness of Jesus looks to heaven and to praise. The man has to be watching Jesus' eyes. And he sees Jesus' cock his head back to pray. A prayer of dependence. The privacy he gives, the unblocking of the ears, the touching of the tongue, the prayer to God. And I want you to see this as we come to a close. The sigh. A fasta, that is, be opened, and his ears were open. Kicking back into 33. 
and taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting and touching his tongue, he looked up to heaven and he sighed and said to him, Ephthatha, that is, be open. We get this genuine sense of Jesus' emotional life that he's looking at this man who's deaf and can't speak, and Jesus sees this man's condition and just sighs compassion to him. You see, we think this wouldn't have cost Jesus anything to engage this way. He's the magic man. He's the miracle man. He's the one going around and just making things new. But we forget is that Jesus knows what it was supposed to look like in a way that no one else, anyone else does. See, he knows that lungs weren't meant for cancer. They were meant for breath and life. He knows that heart wasn't made for disease. It was made for strength and vitality. He knows that marriage wasn't made for brokenness and affairs. It was made for safety and love. He knows creation wasn't made for addiction, that it was meant to bless men and women, not dominate men and women. No one knows more than Jesus just how far things are from the way that they're supposed to be. And he stands there just about to heal the man, and he sighs. For him to stay so emotionally engaged, to not numb out. Aaron and I used to watch the show This Is Us on NBC. Did you watch that show? Did you finish it? I gave up a season in because I knew each week they were trying to make me cry. They were set out from the beginning. They were trying to make me cry. And a new episode would drop, and she'd be like, hey, babe, our show's on. Let's watch it. And at a certain point, I said, you know, I don't think I have the emotional energy for that show anymore. For that show on television, I don't have the emotional energy. And yet our king, who is going through rewriting a world gone wrong, has the emotional energy to stand before that man and sigh. I know it's been hard, but things are about to get so much better. This reminds us when he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who he knew was going to die. He knew he was going to die. And then he died, and then he comes and he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's standing there sighing, breathing like a war horse. It means Jesus takes the pain of your life seriously and personally. How do I know? That's why he came. That's why he came. Something really cool. I'll show you this and we'll close. Have you ever gone onto YouTube and watched these children who get cochlear implants? and see them hear their mom's voice for the first time? I'm not crying, you're crying. There's this one where this child is, all of a sudden, they cue the thing, they turn it on with the computer. The child is first alert, and then hears mommy's voice, I love you. And the child lights up, and then begins to weep. I promise you will cry hearing for the first time. Can you imagine this man hearing for the first time? Here's Jesus. Wesley says it this way, Hear him, ye deaf, ye praise his dumb, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. 
Jesus will meet you in your desperation if you're an outsider or you're a lost cause. And you know what word he uses here? There's two times in the whole Bible that this word is used. Mogilalan. Mogilalan. The only other place in the entire Bible that it's used. Can you guess? Alistair Begg pointed this out to me. It's used in Isaiah 35, 5. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear your God will come. And he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the death unstopped. So Jesus, from Isaiah 35, 5, your God will come and make things right. And Jesus is using that specific word through Mark, through Peter. He's sort of saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for, outsiders. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, those that feel like they're not enough. Tim Keller says it this way. Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution. He came to bear it. Friends, if you are feeling like an outsider, or maybe you know an outsider, or you are feeling like a lost cause or someone who is desperate, don't let that lost causeness and religious outsiderness drive you away from Jesus. Your desperation is the best thing you've got going. Just let it take you straight to the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we tend to resent the things about us that make us feel desperate. And we miss the point that when we are weak, then we are strong. You know what in each one of us here makes us feel so weak. Would you help us to connect the dots that instead of resenting those things, to let those things drive us straight to your feet. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What in each one of us here makes us feel so weak? Would you help us to connect the dots that instead of resenting those things, to let those things drive us straight to your feet? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.